getting to the point where I'm raising my voice and I'm panicking because um, she's screaming in pain. You know, it's just awful. Podcasting for our health with NHS Blood and Transplant in association with Bristol African Caribbean Expo and BCFM Radio. Hosted by Primrose Granville, the accidental campaigner and broadcaster and producer, Pat Hart. Hi, everyone. It's Primrose Granville here. I am back. The Accidental Campaigner returns with podcasting for our health. In this episode, I will be focusing on blood, but not just blood, blood as it relates to people living with sickle cell disorder, a community where many in healthcare facilities don't really know how to work with them, how to look after them and how to address their concerns. In recent months, we have had several situations. We've had lots of media attention around young men who have lost their lives because of a misunderstanding of the seriousness of sickle cell crises and just how unwell people who live with sickle cell disorder can get and how life-threatening simple things like being out in the cold are for them. We've heard of Evan Nathan and the fact that he was in a hospital bed and had to call up the 999 service to try and get help in getting pain relief and a blood transfusion. He eventually lost his life, a life that the coroner said could have been saved had he gotten the transfusion he asked for while in hospital. A simple matter of a blood transfusion would have meant that he'd be alive today in university, still enjoying his life and achieving as he wanted to do with us. We've heard about Richard Origehi. He went missing. The cries for help from his mother about how serious his health conditions are were ignored. They were ignored by lots of people. His mother has given testimony after testimony on just how little help she received. Eventually, he was found no longer with us. And we do wonder sometimes, is health inequality or the inequity in delivering health to people who are non-white, is that down to ignorance? Is it down to lack of information? Is it down to people not caring? Is it down to people not knowing? What can we do about addressing health inequality in our society? And in particular for this podcast, people who are living with sickle cell disorder and people who are part of the whole community who help and assist with getting the message out there to healthcare professionals, the major services, the ambulance, the police, the fire services, about how people who live with sickle cell disorder, how they should be looked after. They are very vulnerable people, but many people don't know that. I'm Primrose Granville, the accidental campaigner, podcasting for our health. I didn't set out to do this. However, I am the daughter and sister of transplant recipients. I'm the mother of someone who may one day need a transplant. And I am a transplant recipient myself. We will hear today from Joe Hartland. 
he helps to train medical doctors. And he's passionate about ensuring that medical doctors have the right ideas, know how to look for health inequality, not become a part of that health inequality, not to become complicit in delivering health care that isn't equal, whatever part of the society you come from, and in particular, people from black and Asian communities, people who are LGBT+, anyone who is marginalized, to ensure that they can see more than a patient, but a human being. Something that is very important in ensuring you deliver holistically. When you deliver healthcare holistically, you look after a person, not a file, not a number, not a disease or disorder, but a whole person who might present to you with a headache, but there's a whole other complexity behind that single headache. So we will hear from him and we will hear some interesting things that he has to say about how he wants the system of educating medical doctors to run. So um, my name's uh, Joe Hartland. I use he, him pronouns. And I am uh, involved at the University of Bristol Medical School in thinking about how we teach about health inequality and how we include the voices of people from marginalised communities in our undergraduate medical education, uh, as well as also thinking about how do we tackle uh, inequalities that exist in higher education uh, as well. So kind of both sides, I guess, of our curriculum. I, I'm a doctor by training. I worked in the NHS from 2013 to 2018, and then I left and started working full-time for the University of Bristol. And I have a real passion for undergraduate education because when we teach our undergraduates in medicine, so those uh, medical students who have yet to become sort of qualify and become doctors, we are creating you know, the, the medical workforce of the future. And it's that group that we need to be training not only to be aware of the existence of kind of health inequalities, but I think pushing it further and actually thinking about what can they do? So what do they do that either helps to reduce the health inequality or what do they do that sustains or makes it worse? Because whatever bias they bring to their clinical encounters can go both ways. So they may be helping to address inequalities, but they should also be aware if they're not and if they're feeding into problems. When we have an absence of somebody from a health service that we provide, it's not necessarily down to that individual not being there uh, and not being visible in the service. Sometimes it can be that what we're doing as a service perhaps isn't creating an environment in which that person can either come in or um, isn't getting the treatment that they need. And it's not necessarily about individuals or even about individual treatment centres. I think it's more about a wider perspective of who do we see um, in hospitals receiving care around certain conditions. Now, I guess I connected it in a way to the thinking that I had done based on my own work as a medical student when I used to help run um, 
a organization, a charity called Marrow, which was part of the Anthony Nolan, which is the UK's or one of the UK's bone marrow registers. And one of the drives that we had there was to do with increasing the representation of ethnic minorities onto our transplant register because you are much more likely to get a transplant uh, from someone who is genetically relatively similar to you. And although there are very few racial differences when it comes to kind of levels of genetics, it does make a little bit of a difference when it comes to transplants. Podcasting for our health with NHS Blood and Transplant in association with Bristol African Caribbean Expo and BCFM Radio. Our first testimonial about the issues around living with sickle cell disorder can become so overwhelming and so hard to live with and so painful that it's almost as if there's, there's just no help out there. We will hear from a parent of a seven-year-old girl and a 12-year-old girl. We will hear Naomi talk about the experience her 12-year-old got when she had a crisis in hospital. How good the delivery was of the healthcare that her daughter needed. How happy she was with it. She's a parent. That's what any parent wants. A parent wants to know that my child goes into hospital, the doctors are going to look after them. The worst they're going to do to them is stick needles into their hands. And most children don't like that. I don't even like needles. Not at all. I can't stand them. But I know they help me to be better. But beyond the needles and a little bit of painful treatment, you know, sometimes surgery, that kind of stuff, you don't want to see children go to that. But you actually don't want to see children go through conditions and treatment for something that just isn't right. So Naomi will also speak to us about the experience of her seven-year-old daughter, how traumatic that has been and still is. It is ongoing. I'm a mother of four. Um, two out of my four, my two oldest daughters have sickle cell SC. The eldest is 12 and my second daughter, who has the SC, is seven. On the regular medication, just a penicillin twice a day, folic acid once a day. Never really had any big issues, you know, mainly sort of preventative measures, obviously making sure they weren't overexerting themselves or getting dehydrated or too cold, you know, the, the usual um, with managing a child or, or someone with a sickle cell. They never had any, any problems, no major problems. You know, if they had any pain, we could treat it with, you know, the ordinary sort of cowpaw and child ibuprofen. They had their first crisis in July 2017, within two weeks of each other. Um, so there, there was a, a virus going around called slack cheek syndrome, which is ordinarily, if it affects any other child which doesn't have a, a blood disorder, you know, would be sort of like it, you treat it mildly. Um, but with someone with sickle cell, it was um, it became a, a challenge. So they both had their first um, sickle cell crisis. The oldest was the first one to have a crisis, and she had she was in hospital for about four days, and then the second one was in for five days. So for me, I guess after that, I was probably taking the condition a bit more seriously because until up until that point you know we're kind of you know sort of failing through life not worrying about this condition and just you know sort of managing the best that we could 
sickle cell SC, um, so you got the SS, which is the sickle cell Neiman, and the SC. So my husband had the hemoglobin C trait, and I had the S trait, and then together our, our girls now have the sickle cell SC. Usually, those with SC do can get regular crisis. Um, it's usually not as, as aggressive as those with the SS. They don't usually have to have a blood transfusion, which is, as I go later on in my experience. So, yes, yeah, so those with SC don't usually, they would say, typically won't usually need to have a transfusion, whereas those with the SS may have, usually have to have a regular exchange. So, with Hanaya, so, that it, so I, I said, I spend all of that to say on this admission, Understanding the process and the protocols, you know, the usual process and how sickle patients are treated. Went in into the A&E, well, the ambulance came, um, did their usual assessment to said, you know, obviously, mum, we'll go into the hospital, we get to the A&E. Um, it took quite a long time to get the pain release on this occasion, which was a bit odd. Um, they had on the oxygen eventually. So we get to the ward. There was no pain specialist on this occasion, so she didn't have the PCA, still obviously in a lot of pain. And this was, so basically their, their plan was that she would just be given <laughs> her medication orally, which was Oromorph, which is 10, 10 milligrams of Oromorph, which, you know, when someone's having a crisis, isn't going to touch it. Oromorph, paracetamol, and ibuprofen. Um, so we get to the ward, and this is late at night now, so we're, you know, she's, she's sleeping. The doctor that admitted her, who we met on admission, said, you know, make sure she has the morphine in the night. So then we wake up in the morning and she then obviously really uncomfortable and screaming in pain. And the nurse says, oh, well, I, you know, I didn't give her the morphine because she was sleeping. I just wanted her to rest. I said, well, you know, why? You know, what's, what's going on? So I'm still expecting um, to see, you know, a, a pain specialist or someone from the hematology team um, to come down and, you know, sort of what usually happens, and that's again, what would usually happen was, you know, maybe just one specialist nurse would pop down, you know, sort of check that everything's going all right, you know, maybe have a check-in with the nurses to make sure that they, you know, were doing the right thing. Um, so fortunately, on this occasion, that didn't happen. So it was very, a bit all over the place, and, you know, they were sort of giving her the pain relief all at once, so it wasn't sort of, Staggered pain relief, so she was extremely uncomfortable I and mean, just extremely uncomfortable. So she then has another extremely like, an acute pain episode on the Thursday. So she's due the morphine anyway. I think it was thirty minutes, no, forty minutes. She would do the the morphine. So I'm saying to the listeners, I think you're going to have to contact the pain team or the emergency doctors, and we're going to have to bring that morphine forward. She, she basically said she just refused to do it. Um, my daughter's then, you know, she's rolling around, sickle cell nerve, rolling around in pain. Then she obviously, then she obviously then starts screaming. And I'm getting quite annoyed and desperate at this point. So I'm going backwards and forwards and saying, can we have the morphine? Can we just have the morphine? Because I, you know, I've, I'm sure by the time the team comes, they're going to give her a whole lot more than what yeah, what the, what you're going to be giving her. Um, so this went on for a, a good half an hour, and we're you know getting into thirty five minutes. And now I'm getting to the point where I'm raising my voice and I'm panicking because um, she's screaming in pain. You know, it's just awful. I'm looking through this glass window, 
and you can see something that they have that can probably help for a little bit and you know they were refusing to give it I've called my family um, in London called my mum on messenger and said you know I'm losing it here they're not giving her the pain relief um, so my sister was like well you know what, you know, what you're going to do she needs this now they can hear her crying they're crying because she's crying um, then I, I dialed 999 I said this is I'm now and now I'm worried if they're refusing to give her pain relief and she desperately needs this pain relief um, and I'll give the the um, emergency responders their due um, they didn't they didn't you know sort of fob me off or anything they were asking me questions they asked me where I was um, and then at that point, you know, the nurse came in and said, oh, no, 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 you don't have to do that. I've, I called the emergency team. They're on their way. Uh, you know, they're five, they'll, they'll be down in five minutes. So I said, well, you know, can she have the pain relief now? Um, so then the nurse takes the phone and says, you know, there's no need for any emergency service. You know, we'll, you know we've got the emergency team coming. You know, I think we, we were discharged on the Saturday. So admitted on the Tuesday then discharged on the Saturday. Our second testimonial is from an amazing young man who lives with sickle cell disorder. Dunstan will tell us about the pain of sickle cell. He will tell us that he was determined to achieve. He will tell us how it feels to be stereotyped as somebody living within the sickle cell community. Um, my name is Dunstan Nicholson. I work as a research manager for the joint office between King's College London and South London Monthly Hospital um, and 28 and I have sickle cell. So I knew from birth, um, my parents, well my parents knew from birth that I had sickle cell. It was something that they didn't know about because they both had the traits. Um, until I was born, then they did a test and they said, yep, Johnson has sickle cell. Um, so it's something that I guess, as a, as a child, I didn't understand what was happening, you know, like I'd get excited for things and then all of a sudden I have this crazy pain um, all over my body and things like that. And so it was, I guess the realisation didn't happen until I was in hospital, probably from around five. Um, and that's probably when I knew, okay, I have something different compared to everybody else. Um, which is quite difficult to deal with as a child because, you know, people get stomach aches and they feel sick and things like that. Um, but it wasn't like, uh, yeah, it was just kind of, I was different. And from that age, you're very aware of what is different. The way sickle cell used to affect me when I was younger, because I didn't understand it properly, is that every time I got excited for things, all of a sudden, I'm hit with a pain in my arm, which is so bad. I've had someone describe it as like your hand is trapped, your arm or wherever it's hurting is trapped um, in a car door and someone's repeatedly slamming it. And that's such an accurate representation of the pain because it is constant. When I do get a crisis, it's just unbearable. It's so difficult to do anything. You go from being able to walk around and have fun with your friends. For example, I stick with my when I was younger, I was playing in the playground and things like that to all of a sudden I can't do I can't catch a ball, I can't walk, I can't hold my own food. It's just such a debilitating um, condition to have because you go from a state of, I guess, what you perceive as normal in doing normal everyday activities to 
child, if I ever said, you know, oh, I have sickle cell disease, you know, kids will stick to that disease portion of um, sickle cell, like, oh, disease, um, and then kind of like run away or whatever, they didn't kids to kids, um, which is why I also like I prefer the term sickle cell disorder um, over disease. As a child, it was very much, I need to calm down or I need to, I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it to things, I don't know if I'm going to be able to go to this party or Maybe after the party, I'm going to feel ill. And mentally, it was really draining because you're always, you're always preempting the worst case scenario. And as someone, you know, being young, just like you just want to enjoy enjoy your life and not really have to think about that. But if I if I didn't, it almost felt like if I forgot myself, if that makes sense, if I forgot I have this as well, if I forgot that if I run around and stuff, it's going to hit, then suddenly I'm in hospital again. I think... Growing, growing up and being older was actually quite, was probably secondary school, probably more of a understanding of the disorder a bit more in terms of when I can get it. I mean, um, as you grow older, you, become, you begin to become more aware of like what happens with your body and things like that. It was really just accepting that, yes, I have sickle cell and then also starting to tell people around me. So I never told, I think from my experiences as a young child, I never really told people in secondary school that I had it. Um, simply because I didn't want to be seen as different. So even some of my teachers, they didn't know that I had it. So if I was off sick, um, I would probably just explain it to the teacher. But then after that, I'd probably say to my friends, like, yeah, it's like food poisoning or something that everyone else could understand. Mm. Um, I remember that being like a main thing in secondary school that I just didn't really talk about it. In terms of like achievements and things like that, I think, I think my secondary school academic life was a lot was very it wasn't prolific in terms of I got loads of A stars and A's. It was just very much I did what I could, I did the best that I could, what's the word? It's not the most remarkable period I guess in terms of achievement. For my degree, I got first class in bioscience. Mainly because I guess I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it, that I could get a really high grade. And also for all the like haters for lack of a better word. Um that you know, I can achieve and have sickle cell. I mean, it was very difficult because, um, for example, my final year, I did my dissertation um, two days before I had a sickle cell crisis because, again, the stress of, like, doing a dissertation coupled with a chronic condition, it was, it was a recipe for having a crisis anyway. But then I still mustered the strength to at least submit it myself um, and get it through. So that was quite, that was quite a proud achievement, like, despite pain despite what people had said to me in the past it was very much a I'm going to achieve and do this well um and which I did I ended up with a first class in bioscience um and then even that well last year um and the year before I was doing a part-time master's while working full-time when people talk about sickle cell in terms of oh that person is lazy that person doesn't do anything but no that's not the case um one of the symptoms of sickle cell is like chronic fatigue um, it does leave you tired and exhausted, and but at the same time, it's not—it's not that the mental capacity isn't there to do things. It's just sometimes it's not physically possible. Podcasting for our health with NHS Blood and Transplant, in association with Bristol African Caribbean Expo and BCFM Radio. Our final guest today is Tracy. She does a very important job with the Sickle Cell Society. A very important organisation, not just for people living with sickle cell, 
but for people who would like to support those who live with sickle cell. For people who would like to give back to their communities. Because the Sickle Cell Society is a very, very powerful ally in the lives of anyone living with sickle cell. We have to look after organizations like that. They're charities. They don't have a lot of money, but they do have a lot of love and they have a lot to give. And if we look after those people who are not well at times, wouldn't this world be a better place? So we will hear a little bit about what Tracy does and what the Sickle Cell Society does because we need to hear what they do. That's the only way we can understand why they need our support. So the Sickle Cell Society are a national charity uh, that exists to support people affected by sickle cell disorder. Um, we have been going for over 40 years. We were set up in 1979 and we were formed by a group of patients, uh, parents and health professionals who were dissatisfied with the lack of understanding and the quality of treatment available for people with sickle cell disorder. Um, we run a range of projects in the community supporting people to develop their well-being and we also have lots of other strands to our work such as lobbying MPs to make sure that legislation uh, affecting people with sickle cell uh, takes people's considerations, people's needs into consideration. We have a heritage project, we uh, support people to access screening to find out if they have the sickle cell trait and we also run a blood donation awareness project called Give Blood Spread Love England and that's the project that I manage at the society. We are very keen to raise our profile and take part in lots of kind of awareness raising events and media um, interviews to talk to people about sickle cell disorder um, I think if people haven't heard about our work, I would very much encourage them to have a look at our website. There's lots of things that people can do to uh, help us raise awareness of sickle cell, um, practical things in terms of fundraising that people can take part in. Um, it's a, a great resource, so I would direct people to our website if people want to find out more about us. It's a condition that affects around 15,000 people in the country. Uh, we still feel that more uh, kind of research needs to go into treatments for sickle cell. Uh, treatments for sickle cell are still quite limited, but for many, uh, blood transfusions, either having top-up blood transfusions or having access to a treatment called exchange blood transfusions, which is where typically people have uh, two-thirds of their blood kind of removed, of their sickle-shaped red blood cells removed and replaced with healthy red blood cells, often uh, often as frequent as uh, every six weeks. That treatment, EBT, is really essential in keeping people alive and well. And the development of that treatment has impacted positively um, upon the lives of people affected by sickle cell. So we talk about it a lot because blood is, uh, ethnically matched blood is really essential in that treatment. Uh, one of my volunteers, I know she won't mind me uh, quoting her, um, I work with a team of volunteers at the Sickle Cell Society who 
support this work. Uh, one of my volunteers called Bola relies on EBT, um, and she always says, blood is life. And it's true, blood is life and ethnically matched blood is essential for people to be able to access those treatments. So we've come to the end of our podcast. It's been a pleasure for me doing this podcast for you. And I hope that the listening has been educational, informative and interesting for you as much as it's been for me to actually put this stuff together. I dug deep into my archive of guests to ensure that you had a story today that would touch your heart. I want to touch your heart because it's only touching your heart that you understand just how important lots of things are. The importance of black blood and what it means to someone who needs a blood transfusion or an exchange. You'll understand the importance of listening to people when they're in any form of health crisis. Only the patient can tell you how they're feeling, whether it be the screams of a seven-year-old in pain or the appeal of a young man saying, do not treat me like I'm some kind of anomaly. I'm another human being living with a condition. Do not stereotype me. Or listen to someone say to us, we must deliver healthcare in an equitable manner. Or listen to someone who simply cares that a group of people who need a little bit more TLC at times has it in them. This has been The Accidental Campaigner. Me, Primrose Granville, presenting Podcasting for Our Health. See you next episode. Bye-bye. Podcasting for Our Health with NHS Blood and Transplant in association with Bristol African Caribbean Expo and BCFM Radio.